8. Non-Scholastic Catholics Turning from the Protestants and the Anabaptist extremists, there were some Catholics during the 16th century who were not scholastics, and who did not participate in the Reformation struggles, but who contributed significantly to the development of economic thought. One of these was a universal genius whose new way of viewing the world has stamped itself on world history. The Pole, Nicholas Copernicus, 1473-1543. Copernicus was born in Torn, Torunya, part of royal Prussia, then a subject state of the Kingdom of Poland. He came from a well-to-do and even distinguished family, his father being a wholesale merchant and his uncle and mentor the Bishop of Ermelant. Copernicus proved an inveterate student and theorist in many areas, studying mathematics at the University of Krakow, becoming a skilled painter, studying canon law and astronomy at the famous University of Bologna. Becoming a cleric, Copernicus was named canon of the cathedral at Frauenburg at the age of twenty-four, but then took leave to lecture at Rome and to study in several fields. He then earned a doctor's degree in canon law at the University of Ferrara in 1503, and a medical degree at the University of Padua two years later. He became physician to his uncle, the bishop, and later served full-time as canon of the cathedral. Meanwhile, as an avocation in the course of his busy life, this remarkable theorist elaborated the new system of astronomy that the Earth and other planets rotated around the Sun, rather than vice versa. Copernicus turned his attention to monetary affairs when King Sigismund I of Poland asked him to offer proposals for reform of the tangled currency of the area. Since the 1460s, Prussian Poland, where Copernicus lived, was the home of three different currencies, that of Royal Prussia, the Polish kingdom itself, and that of Prussia of the Teutonic Order. None of the governments maintained a single standard of weight. The Teutonic Order, in particular, kept debasing and circulating cheaper money, Copernicus finished his paper in 1517, and it was delivered to the Royal Prussian Assembly in 1522 and published four years later. Copernicus' proposals were not adopted, but the resulting booklet, Monetae Cudendi Ratio, 1526, made important contributions to monetary thought. In the first place, Copernicus strengthened the exposition of Gresham's Law, first set forth by Nicole Orem a century and a half earlier. Like Orem, he began with the insight that money is a measure of common market value. He then proceeded to show that if its value is fixed by the state, money fixed artificially cheaply will tend to drive out the dearer. Thus Copernicus declared that it is impossible for good, full-weighted coin and base and degraded coin to circulate together, that all the good coin is hoarded, melted down or exported, and the degraded coin alone remains in circulation. 
He also pointed out that in theory the government could keep adjusting the legal values of two monies in accordance with fluctuating market values, but that in practice the government would find this too complex a task. In the course of his discussion, Copernicus also became the first person to set forth clearly the quantity theory of money the theory that prices vary directly with the supply of money in the society. He did so thirty years before as Pilqueta Navarras, and without the stimulus of an inflationary influx of specie from the New World to stimulate his thinking on the subject. Copernicus was still being a theorist par excellence, the causal chain began with debasement, which raised the quantity of the money supply, which in turn raised prices. The supply of money, he pointed out, is the major determinant of prices. We, in our sluggishness, he maintained, do not realize that the dearness of everything is the result of the cheapness of money, for prices increase and decrease according to the condition of the money. An excessive quantity of money, he opined, should be avoided. Another non-scholastic Catholic who contributed to economic thought in the 16th century was a fascinating Italian character named Gianfrancesco Lotini da Volterra, died 1548, who began the Italian emphasis on analysis of value and utility. In a sense, Lotini was an archetypal Renaissance man, learned Aristotelian scholar, secretary to Cosimo I de' Medici, Duke of Florence, unscrupulous politician, and leader of a Venetian murder ring. At the end of his life, in 1548, Lotini published his Avedimenti Civili, in the Italian tradition, see further in chapter 6, of writing a handbook of advice to princes. The Avedimenti was the work of an elder statesman dedicated to Francesco, the Medici Grand Duke of Tuscany. Lotini investigated consumer demand and pointed out that the valuation of consumers was rooted in the pleasure they could derive from the various goods. In a new hedonistic emphasis, he pointed out that pleasure comes from satisfying man's needs. While counseling the use of moderation, an Aristotelian theme, regulated by reason in satisfying desires, Lotini lamented that some people's wants and demands seem to be infinite. I have known many whose demand could not be satisfied. As in the case of several predecessors, Lotini saw the fact of time preference. People evaluate present goods higher than future goods, that is, than present expectations of attaining these goods in the future. Unfortunately, Lotini gave to this perfectly reasonable and ineluctable fact of nature a moralistic twist. Somehow, this was an improper overestimation of present and underestimation of future goods. This unwarranted moralistic critique was to plague economic thought in the future. As Lotini phrased it, 
the present, which is before our eyes, and which can, so to speak, be grasped with our hands, has forced, more often than not, even wise men to pay more attention to the nearest satisfaction than to hope for the far future. The reasons for this universal fact of time preference are that people pay more attention to things they can perceive with their senses than things they can learn of by reason, and that only a few people follow a long-lasting and risky project stubbornly to its end. In the first reason, Lotini begs the question, the problem is not senses versus reason, but something evident to the senses now versus what is only expected to be evident at some time in the future. His second reason is more on the mark. The emphasis on the long-lasting touches on the crucial problem of length of waiting time, and the word risky brings another and critical factor into play— the degree of risk that the object will never become evident to the senses at all. Lotini's work went into several editions shortly after his death, and a copy has been found belonging to the great English poet and theologian John Donne, 1573-1631, whose marginal notes reveal the Aristotelian influence upon Donne. Successor to Lotini was Bernardo Davanzati, 1529-1606, a Florentine merchant, erudite classicist, and renowned translator of Tacitus, and an arch-Catholic historian of the Reformation in England. At the age of seventeen, young Davanzati became a member of the Florentine Academy, in two works, written in lively Italian style in 1582, and especially in his Lezioni delle Moneta, 1588, Davanzati applied the scholastic type of utility analysis to the theory of money. Thus Davanzati approached and solved, with the exception of the marginal element, the paradox of value, comparing demand and scarcity, Davanzati also followed Bourdin in developing what would later be the excellent analysis by Karl Menger, father of the Austrian school in the late 19th century, of the origin of money. Men, wrote Davanzati, need many things for the maintenance of life, but climates and people's skills differ. Hence there arises a division of labor in society. All goods are therefore produced, distributed, and enjoyed by means of exchange. Barter was soon found to be inconvenient, and so locations for exchange developed, such as fairs and markets. After that, people agreed, but here Davanzati was cloudy on how this agreement took place, to use a certain commodity as money that is, as a medium for all exchanges. First, gold and silver were used in lump pieces, then they were weighed, and then stamped to show weight and fineness in the form of coins. Unfortunately, in his later historical sketch of the theory of money, Menger was ungracious enough to dismiss Davanzati brusquely as simply someone who traces the origin of money back to the authority of the state.
9. Radical Huguenots Calvin began his own Reformation after Luther, but it rapidly swept through Western Europe, triumphing not only in Switzerland, but more importantly in the Dutch Netherlands, the main commercial and financial center of Europe in the 17th century, and coming within a hair's breadth of dominating Great Britain and France. In Britain, Scotland was conquered by Calvinism in the form of the Presbyterian Church, and Calvinist Puritanism heavily influenced the Anglican Church and almost conquered England in the mid-17th century. France was rent by religious political wars during the last four decades of the 16th century, and the Calvinists, known as Huguenots, were not far from triumphing there. Though converting no more than 5% of the population, the Huguenots were extremely influential in the nobility and in pockets in northern and southwestern France. John Calvin, fully as much as Luther, preached the doctrine of absolute obedience and non-resistance to duly constituted government, regardless of how evil that government may be. But Calvin's embattled followers, enjoying rising aspirations against non-Calvinist rulers, developed justifications for resistance to evil rulers. These were first set forth in the 1550s by the English Marian exiles in Switzerland and Germany during the reign of the last Catholic monarch in England, Queen Mary. This radical tradition, including the people's right to tyrannicide, was carried on by the Huguenots in the following decades. Stimulated by the horror of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572, the Huguenots promptly developed libertarian theories of radical resistance against the tyranny of the crown. Some of the most notable writings are the jurist François Hautemont's 1524-1590, Franco-Gallia, written in the late 1560s, but first published in 1573. The Anonymous Political Discourses, 1574, and the culminating work at the end of the 1570s by Philippe Duplessis Mornay, 1549-1623, The Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants, 1579. Defending tyrannicide in particular was the political discourses, which bitterly attacked the so-called theologians and preachers who asserted that no one may ever lawfully kill a tyrant without a special revelation from God. The other Huguenot writers, however, were far more cautious on this touchy issue. Furthermore, three decades before the radical Spanish scholastic Juan de Mariana, the Huguenots advanced a pre-Lockean theory of popular sovereignty. In particular, Hautemont warned that a people's transference of their right to rule to the king can in no way be permanent or irrevocable. On the contrary, the people and their representative bodies have the right of continual surveillance of the king, as well as of taking away his power at any time. Not only that, but the state's general is supposed to have continuing day-to-day -day power to rule. 
Hautemont won general Huguenot acceptance of this new creed by cloaking it in terms of Jean Calvin's original, quite contrasting, political doctrine. But Hautemont's argument for original popular rule was strictly historical, and the counterattacks of the royalist writers soon riddled the historical account with gross distortions. It was necessary for the Huguenots to abandon the original Calvinist council of total civil obedience and construct a natural law theory of the original sovereignty of the people, preceding the consensual transfer to kingly rule. In short, the Huguenots had to rediscover and reappropriate the scholastic tradition of their hated Catholic opponents. Thus, in contrast to the preaching style and emphasis on divine will of the Marian exiles, Mornay and other Huguenots wrote in a logical scholastic style and explicitly referred to Aquinas and to codifiers of the Roman law. In short, as Professor Skinner writes, there was no Calvinist theory of revolution in the 16th century. Paradoxically, the French Calvinists pioneered the development of a revolutionary theory of popular rule by grounding themselves in the natural law tradition of their Catholic adversaries. Furthermore, Occamite scholastics at Paris, for example, Jean Gerson in the early 15th century and the Englishman John Major in the early 16th, pioneered specifically the concept of sovereignty which always inheres in the people and which they can therefore take back from the king at any time. One of the pernicious effects on scholarship of Max Weber's Protestant, actually Calvinist, ethic as the creator of capitalism has already been seen. The neglect of the actual rise of capitalism in Catholic Italy, as well as in Antwerp and southern Germany, Another associated Weberian fallacy is the popular idea of Calvinism as modern and revolutionary, as the creator of radical and democratic political thought. But we have seen that Calvinist and Protestant political thought was originally statist and absolutist. Calvinism only became revolutionary and anti-tyrannical under the pressure of opposing Catholic regimes, which drove the Calvinists back to natural law and popular sovereignty, motifs in Catholic scholastic thought. An important strand of popular sovereignty was worked out by Theodore Beza, 1519-1605, Calvin's leading disciple and successor at Geneva. The great Beza, influenced by Hautemont, published The Right of Magistrates in 1574. Beza insisted that natural law revealed that the people logically and temporally preceded their rulers, so that political power originated in the body of the people. It is self-evident, Beza declared, that peoples do not come from rulers and are not created by them. Hence, the people originally decided to transfer governing powers to the rulers. An influential radical Huguenot pamphlet, The Awakener, 1574, repeated Beza's argument. 
The Awakener was probably written by the eminent French jurist Hugues Donneau. Man could not be naturally in subjection, the Awakener pointed out, for assemblies and groups of men existed everywhere before the creation of kings, and even today it is possible to find a people without a magistrate, but never a magistrate without a people. If man is not to be naturally free, but naturally enslaved, then we must absurdly conclude that the people must have been created by their magistrates, when it is obvious to the contrary that magistrates are always created by the people. As usual, Philippe Duplessis Mornay summed up the position with trenchant clarity. No one, he observed, is a king by nature, and furthermore, and with particular point, a king cannot rule without a people, while a people can rule itself without a king. Hence it is evident that the people must have preceded the existence of kings or positive laws, and then later submitted themselves to their dominion. Hence man's natural condition must be liberty, and we must possess freedom as a natural right, a right that can never be justifiably removed. As Mornay put it, we are all free by nature, born to hate servitude and desirous of commanding rather than yielding obedience. Further, continuing this proto-Lockean analysis, the people must have submitted themselves to governmental rule to promote their well-being. Following John Major, Mornay was clear that the kind of well-being the people advanced in setting up government was to protect their individual natural rights. To Mornay, as to Major, a right over something was being free to hold and dispose of it, that is, a right in the object, as property. The people retain such rights when they establish polities, which they willingly create in order to ensure greater security for their property. These rights of property include the natural right of everyone in their own persons and their liberties. Governments are supposed to maintain those rights, but often become the main transgressors. Mornay was careful to point out that the people, in establishing governments, cannot alienate their sovereignty. Instead, they always remain in the position of the owner of their sovereignty, which they merely delegate to the ruler. The whole people, therefore, continues to be greater than the king and is above him. On the other hand, Mornay and the other Huguenots were constrained to temper their revolutionary radicalism. First, they made it clear in a manner wholly consistent with their view that the whole people retain their sovereignty, that the people are not really the people as a whole, but their representatives in the magistrates and the states general. The people have necessarily given their sword to these institutions, and therefore, when we speak of the people collectively, we mean those who receive authority from the people, that is, the magistrates below the king and the assembly of the estates. 
Moreover, in practice, these alleged representatives keep the enforcement of the king's promises in their hands, since that power of enforcement is a property of the authorities that have the power of the people in them. Furthermore, according to the Huguenots, the sovereign right is only in the people as a whole and not in any individual, so that tyrannicide by one subject is never permissible. The people as a whole are above the king, but the king is above any single individual. More concretely, since sovereignty rests in the institutions of duly constituted assemblies or magistrates, only these institutions embodying the sovereign power of the people can properly resist the tyranny of the king. In a few short years, the rebellion of the Dutch against Spanish rule reached a climax in 1580 and 1581, an anonymous Calvinist pamphlet, A True Warning, appeared in Antwerp in 1581, which asserted that God has created men free, and that the only power over men is whatever they themselves have granted. If the king breaks the conditions of his rule, then the people's representatives have the right and the duty to depose him and to resume their original rights. The leader of the Dutch rebellion, William the Silent, Prince of Orange, adopted the same view in these same years, both in his own apology presented to the States-General at the end of 1580, and in the official Edict of the States-General issued the following July. It should be noted that the apology was largely written by Mornay and other Huguenot advisers. The edict declared that the king of Spain had forfeited his sovereignty, and that the United Netherlands had at last been obliged, in conformity with the law of nature, to exercise their unquestioned right to resist tyranny and to pursue such means as necessary to secure their rights, privileges, and liberties. 10. George Buchanan Radical Calvinist. The most fascinating as well as the most radical of the Calvinist theorists of the late 16th century was not a French Huguenot, but a Scot, who spent most of his time in France. George Buchanan, 1506-1582, was a distinguished humanist historian and poet who taught Latin at the Collège de Guyenne in Bordeaux. Buchanan was trained in scholastic philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in the mid-1520s, where he studied under the great John Major. An early convert to Calvinism, Buchanan became a friend of Beza and of Mornay, and served as a member of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. British Calvinist thinkers of the 1550s, refugees from the Catholic rule of Queen Mary, had worked out in exile a justification for rebellion against tyranny in terms of the godly against idolatry. It remained to restate revolutionary theory in secular, natural rights terms, rather than in the strictly religious concepts of godliness and heresy. 
This feat was accomplished by the Scot, George Buchanan, in the midst of a struggle of the Calvinist majority of Scotland against their Catholic queen. A revolution in 1560 had conquered the Scottish Parliament for Calvinism in a now overwhelmingly Calvinist country, and seven years later the Calvinists deposed the Catholic Queen, Mary Stuart. In the course of this struggle, Buchanan in 1567 began to draft his great work, The Right of the Kingdom in Scotland, which he published in 1579. Parts of Buchanan's argument appeared in speeches delivered by the new Scottish regent James Stuart, Earl of Moray, in 1568, and then in discussions between the Scottish and English governments three years later. Buchanan began, like the Huguenots, with the state of nature and a social contract by the people with their rulers, a contract in which they retained their sovereignty and their rights. But there were two major differences. In the first place, Beza and Mornay had talked of two such contracts, a political-social contract and a religious covenant to act as a godly people. With Buchanan, the religious covenant drops out totally, and we are left with the political contract alone. Some historians have interpreted Buchanan's radical step as secularizing politics into an independent political science. More accurately, Buchanan emancipated political theory from the directly divine or theological concerns of the Protestant founders, and returned it to its earlier base in natural law and in human rights. More radically, Buchanan swept away the entire inconsistent Huguenot baggage of the people, virtually alienating their sovereignty to intermediate representatives. On the contrary, for Buchanan the people consent to and contract with a ruler, and retain their sovereign rights, with no mention of intermediate assemblies. But this puts far more revolutionary implications on natural rights and popular sovereignty. For then, when a king becomes tyrannical and violates his task to safeguard individual rights, this means that the whole body of the people, and even individual citizens, may be said to have the authority to resist and kill a legitimate ruler in defense of their rights. Thus, over two decades before the Spanish Jesuit de Mariana, George Buchanan had arrived for the first time at a truly individualist theory of natural rights and sovereignty, and therefore a justification for individual acts of tyrannicide. Thus, in what Professor Skinner calls a highly individualist and even anarchic view of political resistance, Buchanan stressed that since the people as a body create their ruler, it is possible at any time for the people to shake off whatever imperium they may have imposed on themselves. The reason being that anything which is done by a given power can be undone by a like power. Furthermore, Buchanan adds that since each individual must be pictured as agreeing to the formation of the commonwealth for his own greater security and benefit, 
It follows that the right to kill or remove a tyrant must be lodged at all times, not only with the whole body of the people, but even with every individual citizen. So he willingly endorses the almost anarchic conclusion that even when, as frequently happens, someone from amongst the lowest and meanest of men decides to revenge the pride and insolence of a tyrant by simply taking upon himself the right to kill him, such actions are often judged to have been done quite rightly. We have seen that the Spanish Jesuit Juan de Mariana developed a similar theory of Lockean popular sovereignty and of individual tyrannicide two decades later. As a scholastic, he too had a natural law contract and not any religious covenant at the base of his theory. Skinner ably concludes that the Jesuit Mariana may thus be said to link hands with the Protestant Buchanan in stating a theory of popular sovereignty which, while scholastic in its origins and Calvinist in its later development, was in essence independent of either religious creed, and was thus available to be used by all parties in the coming constitutional struggles of the 17th century. More typical, however, of the dominant strand of radical Calvinism emerging from the 16th century was the distinguished Dutch jurist Johannes Althusius, 1557-1638. His magnum opus was his treatise of 1603, Politics Methodically Set Forth. Althusius built upon and was similar to Mornay and the Huguenot theorists. With them he retained the pre-Lockean popular sovereignty with consensual revocable delegation to the king, and also with them he mediated that sovereignty through representative assemblies and associations. In addition, the justification of individual tyrannicide disappears. However, one innovation of Buchanan's was retained in Althusius' massive treatise, the dropping of any religious covenant. Indeed, Althusius is more explicit, attacking theologians for infusing their political writings with teachings on Christian piety and charity, and failing to realize that these matters are improper and alien to political doctrine. 11. Leaguers and Politiques While the Huguenot monarchomachs have been far more extensively studied than their Catholic counterparts of the late 16th century, the latter are an interesting and neglected group. After the accession of King Henry III in 1574, it began to be clear that the Huguenots were no longer in danger of annihilation, and that on the contrary it seemed that Henry was soft on Protestants. This softness became an acute problem for the Catholics of France in 1584 when the death of the heir to the throne, the Duke d'Alencon, brought into the first line of succession Henry of Navarre, a committed Calvinist. This threat brought into being the Catholic League, especially in Paris, then the heartland of French Catholicism. 
The League, headed throughout France by the Duc de Guise, rebelled against Henry and drove him out of Paris. As we have seen, Henry's treacherous assassination of Guise and his brother the Cardinal during a peace parley led to a mighty act of tyrannicide, in which the young Dominican priest, Jacques Clément, on 1 August 1589, avenged the Guises by assassinating Henry III. Paris, under the Catholic League, was run by a council of sixteen, supported by the middle classes, professionals, and businessmen, and backed fervently by virtually all the priests and cures in the city. The most radical of the leaguer thinkers who flourished during the 1580s and 1590s was a leading attorney, François Le Breton, who, in his Remonstrance to the Third Estate, 1586, bitterly attacked the king as a hypocrite, advocated a French republic, and called for revolution and civil war to attain it. Le Breton was promptly executed by the Parliament, the leading judicial organ in France. The rebellion of the Catholic League, which culminated in the revolt of Paris and other parts of France, was not only motivated by concern over the possible imposition of a minority Huguenot faith upon the Catholic French. Leaguer grievances were political and economic, as well as religious. Henry III, the last Valois king, had imposed upon his country a huge amount of pillage, a very high tax burden, and large amounts of expense, offices, and subsidies. Huge taxes were particularly levied upon the city of Paris. But Father Clément's act, however heroic, proved in the end to be counterproductive. For the first Bourbon, Henry of Navarre assumed the throne as Henry IV. Realizing that he could scarcely remain a Huguenot and still govern France, Henry, after four years of war, converted to Catholicism, supposedly explaining in a probably apocryphal phrase that Paris is worth a mass. Henry IV had won. With the advent of the new Bourbon king came the rule of the centrist or moderate Catholics, the politiques, the politicals. Whether one might call Henry IV and the politiques moderates depends on one's perspective. As secularists and men of feeble faith, it is true that the politiques were not interested in slaughtering Huguenots, and were anxious to end the religious conflict as soon as possible. Henry did so in his toleration decree, the Edict of Nantes in 1598. In that sense, the politiques were middle-of-the-roaders in between the two religious extremes, the Huguenots and the Catholic leaguers and that is the light that most historians have shed upon them. But in another important sense, the politiques were not moderate at all. They were truly extreme in desiring to give all power to the absolute state and to its embodiment in the king of France. In triumphing over both extremes, Henry IV and the politiques rode roughshod over the only two groups who had called for resistance against royal tyranny. The victory of Henry also meant the end of French resistance to royal absolutism. 
unchecked despotic rule by the Bourbons was now to be France's lot for two centuries, until it was brought to a violent end by the French Revolution. It was a high price indeed to pay for religious concord, especially since Louis XIV, the Sun King, the embodiment of French royal despotism, revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685, and thereby drove many Huguenots out of France, in the long run, the religious peace of absolutist moderation turned out to be the peace of the grave for many Huguenots.